John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 605.co0203, certificate number 41705, Alexander von Humboldt. I was in Berlin this summer, as I think we established, if you're listening to these in alphabetical order. You've already heard that on the Gold Hats entry. Were you riding on the metro? It's called the U-Bahn. Wait, what's, what is that song? Uh, it's by the band Berlin. Oh, Berlin. Oh, right. Uh, but it's actually... Um, I only know the Top Gun song by the, Berlin. But the, the train in the song uh, is actually in Paris. Oh, well, that explains why it's called the metro. I she, did. she was on a Paris train. She emerged in London rain, and you were waiting there. I was not, in fact. No, I was in Berlin. But I saw Zoo Station, the uh, oh, yeah. the uh, Famous U2 album. stop that became a U2, uh, yeah, the first song on Achtung Baby. Uh, the museum that has the gold hats. Right. Uh, was the, uh, I noticed across the street from it was this massive complex that had the look of a 19th century palace, but it was being, it was being built. Mm-hmm. They were building a new 19th century palace on this giant city block uh, right on the right on the Spree River there. Is it Spree or Spray? What do you say? You know, unfortunately, like my German is terrible. And so I say Spree, but I'm sure it's Spray. When right? it goes into the ocean, is it Ocean Spray? No. And that's uh, my favorite cranberry juice is not Ocean <laughs> Spray. But no, the Germans, uh, you know, they, 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 insert schwas that aren't visible to the rest of us, right? Right. You're I not supposed s- to say Sturm und Drang. It's Sturm, Sturm und Drang. Right. Uh, anyway, the Spray River, let's call it that, just right. for just so the German listeners, and there are quite a few listeners to the Omnibus from the great State region of, of Germany. Future, future pan-Europe Germany. Right. Um, which is once again taken over Europe. Uh it was. Let's, uh, let's not go there. The river also goes. You don't. The you, don't want, you don't want to go there. Well, probably, the borders are probably closed, so <laughs> oh. we probably can't go there at all. The uh, so I was trying to figure out why they were building this massive palace. You know, they're very good at that. The Germans building massive reproductions of buildings that, for whatever reason, <laughs> who can might, say, might have why? been bombed into rubble at some point in the forties. <laughs> This was one of those buildings when I looked it up. This was this was the historic Berlin Palace where all the electors of Brandenburg lived and German kings and electors, uh, em- sorry, kings and emperors lived. That was Kaiser Wilhelm's palace. And uh, when destroyed it was, during the war, when it was destroyed during the war, I, the East Germans finally in 1950. Um, bulldozed what was left of the palace and built their their palace of the republic their people's palace right which was their parliament building but it also had um like a movie theater and a bowling alley and, uh, and three art galleries and you know it was you know ice rink th- this is the a discotheque i think right it's the madison square garden problem this is the except this is also where their their parliament their rubber stamp <laughs> parliament met like this is socialism with a human face you know there's a there's a disco in the in the soviet right uh 
But uh, after reunification, uh, you know, what are they, they? I think they tore down this awful, ugly, East German architected, you know, very Hanukkah looking uh, palace of the people or whatever it was right. called. Well, well, pre Hanukkah, but yeah, right. The, the right. socialist uh, re- socialist architecture socialist of the paradise. 50s. Yeah. And they decided to, after much discussion, they decided to rebuild the old palace with the original kind of colonnade and the the old pillars and everything, facade on three sides. The side on the river, which I later saw when we took a little boat tour, is is modern. Uh So they're kind of splitting the difference. It's the palace from the land, but... uh, you know, in the sheets, it's, it's modern <laughs> architecture. It's, it's funny how, how much I, as a, as a preservationist or whatever, and as someone who generally doesn't like facsimile, I really admire this about the Germans. Like the city of Dresden famously laid to waste has over the, the decades rebuilt itself into a pretty passable version of Dresden. My brother was there a couple of weeks ago and he was like, yeah, they rebuilt the cathedral with like all the same blocks, like a jigsaw puzzle, Yeah, which is fascinating to me. Like I went to Coventry, which had a cathedral that was bombed by the Luftwaffe. And now they just, they punted and built some kind of modern glass thing and right. said, remember the, you know, the, this cathedral is the absence of a cathedral, but not the Germans. A lot of people may, and there, there are a couple of places I think like in, um, I mean, there there are many many different decisions were made. Like the the town of Munster was completely destroyed and rebuilt to look exactly like its old self, but at point eight scale. <laughs> <laughs> they all wanted to just feel a little bit no, taller. It, it was n scale, and the little uh, <laughs> the little train rolls around. But then there are other places like um, like in Kassel. There's a cathedral I think that was that one of the towers fell down, and so they rebuilt a new tower, but in a modern style. So the, the church has one old tower and one new tower. It's really an abomination. That's <laughs> so I guess Germany, that's why the license plates say perpetually quaint. They're just mm. going to keep, they're just going to keep it the same. They're going to quaintify the, t- the, the country until you cannot be mad at them. So this new palace is going to be their new, it's going to be like their British museum, I guess. Oh, nice. When it opens, uh, you know, Thousands of years ago to you, but I think later this year to us. So they're not building the interior the same way. Uh, it, it's maybe the layout is the same. They're not going to. Most of the furnishings are now in whatever that palace is west of town, where the tourists go. Um, but it's going to be like their equivalent of the British Museum, with, with all the fruits of Germany's problematic colonial past. Right. You know canoes and tombs and mummies and they did this just recently in Vilnius uh, in Lithuania they rebuilt the um, excuse me they rebuilt the the castle of the Grand Dukes of Lithuania but inside they, they built it so that it looks like the castle but then inside, inside it's it, an arena football stadium completely modern glass and steel oh, really uh, museum of all the you know all the kind of like well this is and it's the what's weird is it's not, this is a chair that the Grand Duke sat upon. It is, this is a kind, this is the kind of chair that the Grand Duke would have sat upon. You know, like they went around and they found yeah. like, they went to some antique malls and bought some stuff. I like the other way around where it's, it's a building that looks like a spaceship on the outside, but then you go inside and it looks like Versailles. Like it's a real kind of a ending of 2001 vibe yeah. where, you know, four poster beds. This doesn't exist, but I would like to see that. <laughs> anyway, this new museum, when it opens, is going to be called the Humboldt Forum, hmm. which makes it one of many things in the world named for the brothers Humboldt. Uh, Wilhelm Humboldt, famous linguist that already has a university name for him in Berlin because he founded the State University of Berlin, and his even bigger celebrity brother. He he was kind of the, uh, he's kind of the Frank Stallone of the pair because the real big name in 19th century Germany was Alexander von Humboldt. Alexander von Humboldt. Uh, for whom he currently has more things and places and asteroids and geophysical patterns named for him than any other human who has ever lived. Huh? And my guess is you have not thought much about Alexander von Humboldt recently. I am. Not only have I not thought of him, 
I do not know anything about Alexander von Humboldt. When you said Humboldt, I immediately thought of Humboldt County, California, which was the place where all the good weed used to come from, the it, California weed. Uh, is that where you, is that Eureka? You're, yep. Because hum, that's on Humboldt Bay. Yeah. Yeah. No, and Humboldt Bay, I just discovered, named for Alexander von Humboldt. So Humboldt County, California, one of the places that you're that you're about to tell me about. This guy has never been to the Oregon California border in his in his many travels and adventures. And yet, uh, one of the thousands of places on earth that are now monuments and memorials to him, because he was once one of the most famous people in the world. And uh, I hope you feel a little humbled. I, I am super humbled. <laughs> Do you feel very humbled that you have not, <laughs> have not until now heard about his adventures and accomplishments? Well, you know, what this, uh, what this, the reason this scares me is it gives, uh, it gives me the sense that you can be a polymath in your time. And be very popular, but no one will ever remember your name, except if you get counties named after you. So that's our only option. At least they will say your name. Right. They won't know anything about what you did or the, the mushrooms you discovered. But uh, Hippies in the, in the 70s and 80s said the word Humboldt all the time. Is that, was that, that was a, a specific strain? Yeah. It was You'd have to like, go get some uh, Humboldt haze or whatever? I'm just out in Humboldt. This he, is the, the Humboldt County was where, you know, you wouldn't drive up a driveway because there somebody would step out of the bushes with a shotgun. Alexander von Humboldt, the namesake of said shotgun Toten County, mm-hmm. uh, was born in 1769 uh, outside Berlin. Hmm. His father was the uh, royal chamberlain of the kingdom of Prussia and had, had a military career. So even though he was not born into the nobility, it was a family of, uh, you know, affluence and, and some power. And he spent a, a happy childhood roaming the forests outside their Tegel estate where he was very interested in all things nature. He, he would be the kid bringing home a, a, a beetle or a frog or whatever. I don't know. Was that ever was that ever your childhood? What's the Alaskan? You bring home a moose or a lichen? I never brought home a lot of uh, frogs, no. I, I, wasn't, I guess I wasn't a naturalist, no. Were you a naturist? I, lo- I loved nature, but I was... Um, I was instinctively someone who wanted to carve up nature to suit his own needs. So I was always digging trenches, chopping off branches. I, you know, I was a, my I was son, a terraformer. My, my son is an inveterate cho- branches chopper offer. And yeah. it drives me nuts. Cut it out, Dylan. The, the, the kids that would just sit and play with a beetle all day with a little stick, I felt like they were in the way of the trench I was digging. <laughs> Well, maybe they were tormenting the Beatles. Like some of those kids are awful. Right, right. But uh, but not Humboldt. He just enjoyed the beauty and the complexity of nature from a very young age. His brother Wilhelm was much happier sitting inside reading the classics, reading Greek and Roman mythology. Oh, there I am. Reading, I'm the Wilhelm. In you're the inside story. reading Seneca, right? Uh, but apparently they had a mother who was a bit of a tyrant, and despite their obvious scholarly gifts, she wanted them to have a good, steady government job. Mm-hmm. So in their early 20s, they're both happily and unhappily ensconced in the mining bureaucracy of the kingdom of Prussia. Oi, Gavalt. Um, where uh, Alexander von Humboldt proves himself to be, you know, just a, a restless intelligence. Mm. He invents a new kind of breathing mask for the miners. He invents a new kind of lamp that works in low oxygen conditions. Um, you know, he, he, he's constantly tinkering. And uh, the best thing that could happen to him finally happens to him in his 20s when his mother dies. Yay! <laughs> I knew this story had a happy middle. And he is, he is, yeah, he is openly rejoicing. I don't know if he even goes to the funeral because mm. now he can, you know, he's, he's got the family purse strings and he can finally leave this stultifying mining bureau job and do what he wants to do, which is explore. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he like has, him. his childhood heroes are, you know, it's Captain Cook and, uh, you know, people who saw the world. And in fact, one of his heroes is, is, still, a, is still alive. Uh, Captain Bougainville, I guess, the French... Namer uh, of the bush? Exactly. The French <laughs> Southeast Explorer. Today, just like Humboldt County... Primarily remembered not for any kind of psychotropic drug, but for a beautiful flower. Uh, and so, he, you know, he, he, uh, he reaches out to Bougainville saying, hey, I'm, I'm a gifted young man with a bright mind and I got money and uh, put me on an expedition. Because he does have a very bright mind. He's, uh, he's hanging out with, with Goethe uh-huh. and with Schiller and with Schlegel. You know, these, we think of these ro- figures of the Romantic movement as artists. 
But of course, they were interested, you know, because the romantic movement put, you know, you know, really put nature on a pedestal and, right. and uh, you know, the kind of the inspiration, the importance of inspiration and beauty and, you know, quasi-religious uh, rapture that could come to you through nature. They were all natural historians as well. Goethe went to Italy and took plant samples and wrote about how the eye sees color. All these people were scientists as well. So Goethe was delighted to have this intelligent young scientist to hang out with. Yeah, Goethe uh, was a Teutonberger. Uh, you know, he um, he had this walking trail that uh, that he used as part of his, you know, rumin- ruminative uh, strolls that has become enshrined in sort of central German walking culture. People like to walk the Goethe trail. Yeah, it's called um, it's called the oh the the Rennsteig. Or the Rennsteig. God, I can never get the I-E in German. You got the S-H the in, the, in the Stieg. Yeah, let's say Rennsteig. When I read about somebody like that, I really feel bad about myself. Like somebody like Goethe, who was not just a poet and philosopher and novelist and essayist and the director of his local theater, and but just, you know, had all this time for, like, had all this time for science. And meanwhile, I sit at home thinking, you know, I should be a gentleman of leisure like Goethe with this boundless energy and accomplishment. And yet I'm like, is this the year I take banjo lessons? You know, like, should I learn Japanese? Do you think that it's an energetic lack or do you think it's some co- it's some um, product of the modern world where we're just distracted and it's too easy yeah. to get the stimulus that you would have to search for otherwise? <laughs> I, I always chalk everything up to technology because really what else has changed between... Goethe and me. We're both geniuses yes. who can pay the rent. Right. What is preventing me from Goethe-like achievements? It's got to be technology. And I, you know, I already have a screen to stare at all day. I don't need to go to Italy and find six different kinds of, uh, of, of moss. I wonder if it's something to do with inherited money also, or, or to, to be born into a family where you can go get an education as part of your grooming to be a gentleman, but you're, you're never, you're never going to be required to really to labor in the same way. I mean, if you think about anyone right now, who's teaching art in a major university, almost certainly, um, will never have to work for a living. That's just, I'm just, I'm disparaging art teachers now, but they're the last people with tenure. So we can disparage them. if, If you think about, they got very lucky. If you think about most rock musicians, it's very rare that you get a rock musician who truly came from nothing. Um, Eminem, for instance, or Kurt Cobain, where they just had no resources. Most rock musicians, if you dig a little deeply, uh, you figure out like, oh, the Beastie Boys, like their fathers were all millionaires. Uh, and um, I was just reading something this week, the, the Duplass brothers. Do you know these these guys, these mumblecore guys who yeah. are now kind of a movie acting and producing and directing and writing empire. They're very talented, but they were kind of giving advice on social media. And a lot of the advice really amounted to be born get, rich, get your parents to agree to give you a $3,000 a month stipend and pour $10,000 each into each of your projects that you write a little, uh, uh, right. syllabus for, uh, of it for, you know, like that's a very important step. It turns out that's the key to success. And that's true of so many people who you, you know, you, whose work you admire, you find out that, um, mom and dad were very financially supportive of yeah. that work, and that's that's how it happened. Anyway, so you're saying you and I should feel okay. We're we're men of the soil, and that's why. Think of the hard work that we've done in our lives, Ken, just to get where we're at, just to keep hustling. <laughs> um, but what he really wants to do, like, he's very happy going to science labs with Goethe and zapping frog corpses with electricity to see what happens because mm-hmm. this is the forefront of science. At God, the time. who wouldn't? What sounds like a dream afternoon. Just hanging out with Goethe and zapping, zapping dead, zapping frogs, dead frogs with electricity. That was the best hang. Why don't you then. and I go do that this afternoon after we're done recording the we, show? We can't because you never ca- caught frogs as a kid. Uh, you don't know how to get the frogs. But what he really wants to do is see the new world, of course. This is the turn of the, the beginning of the 19th century. There's still, there's still a big, mysterious, unmapped portion of the world, kind of for the last time. And that's that's a wonderful thing that we lack, is the, uh, that horizon. feeling of terra incognita. I was thinking about how, you know, I wonder if that's what caused a lot of the, you know, that's what 
really drove a lot of these polymathic people is just, you know, the unknown is out there. And, you know, the stakes are very low for us. Like you and I know we're not going to discover a new chemical element. Right. There's a chart showing us we can't. And, uh, and if we, if we just head West, we're going to run into a Taco Bell Arby's, uh, Jack in the box, like confab. The view from the great pyramid of Giza today is a pizza hut. Is it really? Maybe it's a KFC. I think it's a pizza hut. Oh, that's terrible. Anyway, it's some kind of second tier fast food place. <laughs> and that's just the world we live in, but not, uh, not von Humboldt. He, he wanted to explore and he, all he needed to do was find a patron. But uh, Bougainville, after hiring him on, the funding for his mission gets canceled and Bougainville gets replaced by a different sea captain. And then, you know, Germany doesn't want to hire him. Like, you know, he's going, he's writing letters everywhere. And finally, Spain says, hey, why don't you go explore vast new Spain for us? Oh, he did have to hustle, though, to get that gig. He did. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, he had to get the king, the king of Spain to give him papers saying this guy is welcome in the realm. Mm-hmm. And with that in hand... He begins a, you know, his five-year mission to explore strange new worlds. Right. Seek uh, out new life. Of, of new Spain. And he literally does seek out new life and kind of old civilizations. But he spends the next five years uh, doing one of the most intensive and versatile scientific explorations ever conducted. Now, is he, is he signing on with a sea captain uh, who, is, who has another mission? Or is he truly being sent out as a naturalist? As a leader of an expedition, and the boat, and the, and everything else is, uh, they're all there, dedicated to supporting his. This, this is a very lean operation. It's for the most part, it's him and a French botanist friend, who who get passage on a boat to oh. Havana or whatever, and they basically they just show up with, with their pith with, helmets with and- butterfly nets and a letter from the king, you know, a letter of invitation from the king, and. They need to organize guides and, and dugout canoes and oh, head up the Orinoco. This sounds amazing. This is this is getting better and better for you. Yeah. Why why have I never been uh, given a charter to go explore in this way? It seems a little less colonialist. At least it's not a guy with a big boat full of cannons. Like it's just a startup. It's just two bearded white guys wandering into the jungle. Sure. Kind of, which I is mean, kind of problematic in its own way, but typically the, the crocodiles and the insects will take care of this problem. Well, but you know, they're driven by curiosity and by by a feeling that you can explore and discover. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout there are only six thousand known plant species in the world at this time so just by getting to you know you know, a few miles outside of the, the, the Spanish settlement on the Venezuelan coast. Yeah. All and, of a sudden and, you've, you've discovered an orchid no one has seen. Right. It's orchids and mushrooms and lichens and liana vines. And, uh, and the only problem is like pressing them all in the high humidity of, uh, right. of the South American jungles. And, you know, he's fascinated by everything. He's, he's sketching birds and he's pressing Orchids, and he's got a telescope so he can see constellations that you can't see from Europe. Um, he's got a plan to. Ob- he wants to do geography as well. He's, he he thinks the maps might be wrong, hmm. so he's got a plan to observe an eclipse, and with the you know the very precise timing that you can get from knowing exactly you know when totality begins and ends, uh, calculating the precise uh, longitude of where he is, and he discovers that sure enough, he is one degree nine minutes. 
further south than all the maps say. Venezuela is 35 miles wrong on every math map. And he just shows up in town and figures it out because he's brought instruments. You know, he's got barometers. He's going to boil water at every altitude to see exactly how high he is, judging by how fast the water boils. He's going to measure the magnetic field of the earth at different places, something that no one has ever thought of doing. He has a hair hygrometer. Do you know what a hygrometer is? No. Measures uh, moisture, humidity. Oh. So he's going to take good humidity measurements because, and there's no good way to do this back then except to study, a human hair will actually change in length when air gets more humid. Really? You've probably noticed. You get a little little bushier, right? So he's using hair theory to, uh, to determine, to do climate measurement. That seems like a very delicate instrument. It's a, yeah, I think it's a, it's basically a hair. And by measuring the hair, you can be like, oh, 80% humidity today as it shrinks and grows by just millimeters. Um, and, you know, he loves the local people. He, you know, he's, he's amazed at how many Indian words like tobacco have already entered European languages. And he's collecting all these for his etymologist brother. Um, and there's really no science he's not interested in. As, as he goes from Venezuela, then later to Havana, then cross decides to cross all of South America on foot rather than taking a boat around, um, what would that be? The Cape of Good Hope? Cape of... Cape Horn? Cape Horn. Cape Horn. Yeah, Cape Horn. Cape of Good Hope's Africa. Uh, instead of taking a boat, he decides to just cross the continent, which of course means... Going over the Andes. Yeah, the Amazon rainforest and the Andes That seems are crazy. In the way. That, that would be hard even today. <laughs> Uh, in fact, it would be hard. In fact, let me tell the story now. Uh, he's the kind of guy who cannot see a mountain and not climb it. Yeah. So when he gets close to Chimborazo, Chimborazo is then thought to be the highest mountain on earth because the Himalayas have not been surveyed accurately. So it's assumed that Chimborazo, the highest mountain in the Andes, is the highest point on earth. And they're not that far wrong. It's only a mile or so shorter than Everest. Right. And in fact, you know, interesting fun fact that uh, hopefully the futurelings will know because they have a comprehensive knowledge. And mountain ranges are the one thing that are not going to change in the rubble of our situa- uh, civilization. Well, well, it depends on the nature of the cataclysm. Depends on where the meteor hits, I guess. <laughs> Chimborazo is actually bulges further into space than Mount Everest. Oh, because it's, it's closer to the equator. Right, it's it's oh. right on the equator. And so it's you know 10,000 feet further from the Earth's core than Mount Everest is, even though it's not as high above sea level. But that doesn't affect its penetration into the atmosphere, right? Because the atmosphere is also the same depth. The atmosphere bulges as well. You're right. Um, But he wants to summit Chimborazo, which is an incredibly difficult climb. He has no climbing, uh, the the breathing, the oxygen stuff you would need, as we discussed in the bodies of Mount Everest. And... uh, they also wool and leather is all he's got going right. for him. He doesn't have modern North Face stuff. Uh, they actually get within a thousand feet of the summit. They get to when he boils water, he sees he's at 19,143 feet above sea level, and then a vast ice crevasse bars their way. And they almost die trying to cross the crevasse, and it becomes clear they're going to have to turn around and go back home a thousand feet from the oh, summit of Chimborazo. But for decades, that remains the highest climb a human has ever climbed. And in fact, at the time they did it, it was the highest a human being had ever been, um, higher than any French balloonist. Huh. And a, a few years later, apparently in 1804, that's when the physicist uh, Gay-Lussac goes really high up, goes up to 20-something thousand feet in a balloon to test atmospheric pressure or something. And so his record of being the highest human only lasts for a, a few years. But he goes across the Andes to Peru and then up to Mexico and even to the U.S. So he spends five years just crisscrossing um, the New World. Now, was that his? Was that the first incidence of his uh, like global fame? Was that the first thing he did where where it is conceivable that people would recognize the name von Humboldt? I don't think he was recognized until years later. So just to fast forward, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll look at more of his expedition. But he he goes home and he spends the rest of his life. You know, he kept amazing records, of course, and he spent the rest of his life just decades. He thought in a few years he could he could write it all up and then go on to the next challenge. But instead, he ends up writing between 25 and 30 volumes of his findings. That's what we haven't done. We need to write up the volumes of our findings. That's what we're doing now. Oh, right. We're doing the audio volume. We have 180 of these. We're we're way ahead of this, Piker. I can't wait to go to Jennings Bay. (laughs) He, uh, and, and he writes on every possible subject, you know, he's, 
he's finding mastodon fossils and realizing they're extinct species. And he's sketching waterfalls, you know, like with the soul of an artist. He, he thinks they're beautiful. He wants to see the flames leaping out of volcanoes and he braves 150 degree temperatures getting unsafely close to these funerals. <laughs> he, uh, he's in a hurricane coming back from, uh, crossing from Cuba back to Mexico and spends the whole time down in the hole trying to calculate at what angle the ship would have to be before it capsizes. Oh, that's a fun thing to do during a hurricane. There's really, there's really nothing he can do that'll, that'll scare the scientist out of him. Um, and I guess it might be just the sheer volume of measurements he has, which is what gets him to his greatest achievement, which is holistic. He starts putting things together that no one has put together. Yeah. This is a time before Darwin. Like everybody's idea of science basically comes from Linnaeus, who says, I have classified nature. I've got it all down. There's this great chain of being and everything's got a niche. And God has ordained this perfect, balanced harmony of nature. And von Humboldt walks into the jungle and he sees jaguars killing capybaras and caimans killing jaguars and termites killing everything and vine strangling trees. And he thinks this is not Linnaeus's harmony at all. You know, like this is war. Right. Pure chaos. Right. And he starts to write like the order is somehow emerging out of the chaos. Like somehow in this fight between species, we get the natural world as we know it. There is a, a kind of balance. Yeah, and this is yeah. Linnaeus is not wrong about the balance, but he is, he's realized there's some kind of um, adversarial basis for it, and this is this is pre-Darwin, right? So nobody's ever come up with this idea, and in fact, when Darwin hops aboard the Beagle, he is a huge fan of Humboldt's work, and and inspired by and is inspired by this idea that it is the conflicts in nature that has given us the world we exist in, and maybe not just some God-given harmony. Isn't that fascinating that that a that a notion like that could occur to someone and at no prior point had it occurred to anyone that that thought to write it down. And I like that it's a poetic notion. Yeah. I today I saw a jaguar kill a capybara and vine strangle a, a a rubber tree and suddenly this kind of poem appeared in my brain of how the world exists. Right. All and, is and right it, in the universe. And it turns out to be the basis for modern science. Like everything then comes, you know, all of our stuff comes from Humboldt via Darwin. Sure. Um, it's also <laughs> kind of the birth of, you know, all the interconnections he sees in nature. Uh, he arrives at a South America where a lot of forest has been cleared for planting monoculture. You know, indigo is the cash crop. Like indigo is so valuable because... Otherwise, you couldn't wear things that are indigo. You know, sure. think well, how awful that would be if you couldn't wear things that were indigo colored. What, do, what, what would kings and princes wear at the time? So everything's been plowed under to, for the indigo, indigo, which is incredibly, I guess, bad for the soil. It's yeah. just, and, and people who are working the land are like, this is just not going to be here in 10 years. Like they can tell. And uh, with his, with hygrometer in hand, he sees, oh, wait, lakes are, lakes are getting lower and uh, like temperatures are getting warmer. Like in 1799, he discovers climate change and he discovers that, that man's activities are able to actually change an ecosystem, hmm. which again, no one had believed. And so again, this becomes just as influential an idea, although it takes centuries. Well, still controversial today, Ken. <laughs> you got, let's, let's make sure we teach both sides That's here. Right. <laughs> but let's assume uh-huh. that some kinds of climate uh, en- changes. environmental effects are, are anthropogenic or... What's the word for human caused? Anthropomorphic would mean that the climate change can talk to you. Let's let's call it anthropogenic. Something like that. And this this proves these ideas prove very influential to no less than Simone Bolivar, who he later meets in Europe. And Simone Bolivar is just delighted to have volume after volume about the beauties and complexities of South America. Right. All the better to go conquer it. Right. And this appears Liberate in his it. mind, like, wait a second, like I have this amazing treasure trove of information about the Indians and then what Spain did to the Indians and the beauties of my homeland. And I think without his writings, you do not get Bolivar liberating South America. Wow. And what I didn't know until I was reading about Humboldt is that Bolivar was also kind of the first government ecologist. Like 
his his exposure to Humboldt's work, among other things, but I think primarily Humboldt, made him very aware of the possible impacts that the, the you know the, the European invaders had had on his people. Oh, I see. So, so he, not just biological, but also um, environmental. Yeah, and so he sets up forest preserves where trees cannot be cut down because he's been very persuaded by Humboldt's argument about what that does to watersheds and erosion speeds up and you get more floods. I guess people had written about this before, but primarily from an economic point of view. If you plan indigo for 10 years, then you're screwed because you killed all the topsoil. But this is pre-Teddy Roosevelt and um, national parks. Yes. John Muir, in fact, was another fan of von Humboldt. You know, he, John Muir read Humboldt's work later in the 19th century and thought, wow, nature is an interconnected web and we're going to be effed if we, keep, if we keep cutting it all down. I love that you say effed. Well, I don't want to get bleeped. <laughs> Like I maybe our, I don't know. So yeah, now that, we're going to get after. Now that Corinthian is no longer editing the show, we don't know what our new guys. Mark Miles, do we? Are you not going to give? So you named Corinthian Corinthian because just as a parenthetical, you could not remember his name, but you remembered. I still don't remember that his it name. started with the letter C. Right, Corinthian. <laughs> and you thought, yeah, it's probably. Uh, <laughs> you're trying to think of a long word that starts with C because his name's Chandler. It's Corinthian or something. But our new editor is Mark Miles, and Mark Miles has one of those names that just sounds better if you just say the whole thing, Mark Miles. Well, it's it's a alliterative like a superhero name. Right. I believe I, he's a superhero. I and I could have I could have screwed it up early on and called him Mark because it's, you know, Mark Miles, it was hard for me to remember, but I said it enough times. You were calling him Matt and Mike, I think. My, I, I called him Matt for a while. But, you know, somebody Matt, pointed out that we could, you know, that we could call him Second Corinthians. Matt Mark. Oh, Second Corinthians. And when I said, and when I told that to Mindy, she was like, uh, Mark is also a book in the New Testament. Hello. <laughs> Thank you, Mindy. She, that, which is not wrong. All of our editors in perpetuity will be named after New Testament books. Is, it's just part of our the evangelical effort that John and I are secretly bringing to pass on the That's future. Right. That's right. We're I'm trying here. to bring the light of religion to everyone's lives. I'm here to to tell you all about the miracle. Have you heard the good news, John, about our new editor? <laughs> <laughs> I guess another thing we could do is give him a Corinthian-sounding name that started with M, like Macedonian or— Oh, um, Macedonian. I don't know what else. What's... I feel like, you know, Mark Miles has demonstrated to us that he is an extremely, like, reliable and, uh, and like, <laughs> he is, he's been a very solid influence in our transition to no matter No matter how late you get him files, That's right. he will get a show out. I'll send it to him at 4 o'clock in the morning, and he manages to do it. So, uh, so but we're learning and growing together, so I, I think if we're— if there's a nickname for him. It's going to come organically, kind of like uh, uh, an expression of the holistic nature of our relationship. Much like the the web of of, uh, of interconnectedness that Von Humboldt saw. Uh, how did we even get on this? Oh, bleeping. Okay, right. So that's effed up. So it's really effed. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start so our whole the, the modern 19th century ecological movement which begat john muir which begat teddy roosevelt you can kind of trace back to this one prussian guy marching through the jungles and putting electric eels on his skin and go, putting his head in volcanoes and somehow never getting sicker and surviving. Was he truly an autodidact? I mean, he had no influences. I mean, he was, he was well-educated and well-read. So, you know, but no one else was having similar sort of, uh, because when you think about Darwin, like there, there are competing claims that other people were doing 
facts or making similar observations. Sure, you know, uh, people studying, you know, the 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 English guy uh, Lyell, I think, studying the rocks and realizing there are strata. Right. So you know, Darwin is a confluence of things, but in so far, you know, just the idea that that survival of the fittest and and you know, competition and natural selection might be what changes genetics. Um, I think you can draw a straight line from Humboldt to Darwin, which That's is fantastic, yeah, and and is. not to mention the liberation of. South America and uh, and the the American nineteenth century ecological movement, and he loves the native peoples too. Like he's, um, you know, I'm sure in some problematic, condescending way because he's got native guides and he's making them march up volcanoes. I don't know. I mean, but but he's style of the time. But he, you know, he notices their their ecological awareness too. He notices that the a lot of the the Indians around the native peoples. Sometimes I get letters when I say. Indians. Yeah, but we also get letters from well, uh, yeah, from it, people that are like Indians is fine. I'm going to start and I get yelled at for saying native. I'm going to start saying Amerind, which I love. Oh, Don't you love the word nice. Amerind? First peoples, first nations. Uh, you know, the native peoples of South America. He's impressed by how they their their temples are trees, you know? Like there's a story I think about him approaching what he thinks is a hill and then just seeing it's this gigantic tree whose canopy is hundreds of feet across. But and even the, this European notion that the that um that indigenous or right. Aboriginal people are like somehow in, in pure harmony. Yeah, right. But but the idea, but these this particular tribe at least did venerate these tr- these trees, and it was t- you know taboo to cut stuff down. And this was an idea he really admired. Were they Lorax by any chance? <laughs> yes, it was the Lorax tribe. <laughs> and uh, as he traverses Peru and Mexico, of course, he becomes exposed to the ruins of great civilizations. Right. And, you know, a lot of the previous powers there, New Spain and the Catholic Church, were not heavily incentivized to glorify the achievements of the Incas and Aztecs and Mayas they had they had killed. Was archaeology a thing yet? It wasn't, was it? Not so much. I guess the, Humboldt's got a story about going to Mexico City and wanting to unearth this um, beautiful carving. And the church had just buried it in the ground because— they were afraid people would come worship it. Sure, it didn't you know, comport with the saints. A beautiful head appears and people are going to worship it. So you got to cover it in, in dirt and cobblestones. And because he's got letters from the king, he arranges permission to start digging it up. And sure enough, as soon as it's there, there's a big crowd of people being like, <laughs> wow, that's Co- that's Coatlicue, the creator goddess or, or whatever. And uh, the, the archbishop comes down and says, you're going to have to cover up the, wow. the thing. So he's an early archaeologist as well. And, you know, and he's amazed that the Incans had these highways. He says, what, why is the stuff all torn up? And he finds out, well, the, the Spanish took the stone and built cathedrals. Right. And... So, so, you know, suddenly he realizes there's these civilizations before the, he's told that before the the Spaniards were in Mexico City, Tenochtitlan was twice the size of London in population. And he can't, you know, this, this rewires his brain as well. So a lot of his work is about ethnology and studying these people. He also sees slaves and is able to take oral histories of some of the awful stories he hears from the African slaves and the local enslaved um, native populations just on these plantations. And so he's doing, he's also doing sort of, um, he's a sociologist. Uh, co- yeah. And, and, and cultural anthropology, like yes. he's recording what, uh, uh, firsthand accounts. He's, he's trying to learn these languages from these uncontacted. He, he sees the kind of uncontacted and angry, uh, Hivaro people of the Amazon basin and is able to make friends with them because it's just him and a buddy and a butterfly net. Right. And, uh, and you know, learn, tries to learn their word. He's amazed by how good they are. At pr- they have a gift for pronunciation. Huh. Maybe it's just the oh, guy he a, talks to. Mimicry. Yeah. Like he'll say, he'll speak French and German and English and they can just speak back. He, they can say the things back in unaccented French and English and German. So he's writing down, all, you know, learning body parts and names for animals. And uh, so he's also studying the the people of the of the places. Well, now at, at what point does all of this start to translate into fame for him? Because in order for all of these places and, and things to be named for Humboldt, he, he needs to become a, a popular figure. So he, uh, so once he comes back, he starts to synthesize all this knowledge. Um, he writes about, you know, he, he's taken all these temperature measurements, for example, and, uh, everybody did that. All the explorers, you know, after a certain point, who fancied themselves natural historians took temperature measurements. But he realized you could draw isotherms, lines that would connect zones of like climate. Oh, oh I see. 
So he starts figuring out, and he and he, he sees, wait a second, like this these rhododendrons I'm seeing in the foothills around Venezuela, they remind me very much of the ones in the Swiss Alps. It's almost like it's not geography. Right, it's just not. A, it's, it's not, not continent that determines geography. It's it's elevation, right? That determines that huh. determines biology. And so he starts connecting climate zones, which no one has ever done. Uh, and so you start to have ocean currents and, and climate zones and mountains named after him. When he, as he's climbing up Chimborazo, he's taking very careful notes of how the uh, species are changing as he gets higher from different biome to biome. And he real and he, he realizes it's like going between the poles and the equator, but he's just climbing up a single mountain and nobody had ever put that together before. It's funny because you, as a, as a skier, do you, do you see the same? You do because as you, as you ski in, in, uh, at ski resorts that are a higher latitude, for instance, the resort that I grew up skiing at in Alaska, the tree line was at a certain altitude that was that was fairly low. Our our ski resort started at sea level and only went up, you know, three thousand feet. Why is the timberline so low? Because uh, because as he discovered, latitude functions the same uh, as altitude. Right, right, close to the poles, it's like he just went up eight thousand feet. That's right. So we, although we're all the, you know, uh, our mountain was small compared to ski resorts in Colorado that are sometimes fourteen thousand feet high or whatever. Um, our tree line was what gave us a uh, like a bald mountaintop, like uh, above the tree line, because the trees are so skimpy. And then when you come down here and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go to Sun Valley and it's just going to be this treeless and you realize oh the tree line's like much much higher because the latitude is lower in uh in 2015 a bunch of scientists climate scientists retraced his steps up chimborazo and realized that his climate zones were all still there but 1500 feet higher whoa everything had moved up the mountain uniformly because of global warming anyway so this discovery of you know this kind of that everything is connected on the slopes of chimborazo and you could apply it to the planet um is kind of what gives him his first fame he produces this kind of beautifully illustrated chart showing all the plants, engravings of all the plants he encountered in his way up the hill. And then he kind of, in kind of a, maybe a slightly flaky music of the spheres kind of way, he shows the heights of other mountains that that the viewer would be aware of in Europe and shows how, you know, and shows how the effect would be different um, closer to the poles and, and how kind of how the slope of this mountain maps to actual latitude on the earth. So this was something that you would and this display becomes, in your home? Yeah, this becomes kind of a famous chart because it's it, it really seems like it's summed up all natural history knowledge right. in one beautiful chart. So he kind of invents infographics, I guess. Um, and, you know, he also is the first to notice plate tectonics, like noticing that his, you know, the better maps of South America, you know, he can really see how it seems to fit into the crook of Africa. And he notices that the coastal plants he's seeing in Venezuela are very much like the ones from the same latitude in Africa. And he thinks, I don't know how, but these must have been a landform at one time. Like this was one continent. And I don't think there's an earlier record of anybody even spitballing huh. uh, about that. He, uh, he later goes to, on the way home, he's, he's got to, you know, he's, he loves the American experiment. So on the way home, he's got to see Philadelphia and Washington and he, and he's, in, you know, he's enthusiastic about Philadelphia and then Washington is still being built and it's kind of a nightmare. It's just empty streets and no trees and 4,000 people. Even still today. <laughs> just like today. <laughs> but he's got a letter of introduction to President Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And he spends time he with- must have loved him. Oh my gosh. Like Jefferson just wants to pick this guy's brain for hours, especially because the Louisiana Purchase has just happened and the U.S. now borders New Spain. Is, are you saying that this that he was an influence on Lewis and Clark? I mean, must have been, right? Isn't I, this why Jefferson sent them out? I don't know the dates, but it's yeah, if Lewis and Clark have not been sent out yet, absolutely. Humboldt is an influence there. Um, but Jefferson just wants to talk to him for hours about, you know, his America's new neighbors. America now touches Mexico, right. which, you know, continues to this day and is a totally <laughs> easy and untroubled relationship. That we never le- still connect with Mexico. We have not figured this out. In our time, it's as fraught as ever. Uh, largely of our own doing. And and so, you know, the fact that this guy is an expert on every aspect of Mexico, from archaeology to ethnology to botany to, you know, Jefferson, you know, he prepares an 18-page dossier for Jefferson mm. ex- explaining to America what it means to have New Spain as neighbors. And in fact, uh, his discussions with Madison about his environmental beliefs are later what leads to some of Madison's famous speeches about um, 
the importance of preserving the frontier and sorry, the frontier. <laughs> and from there, of course, you get Emerson and, and Thoreau. Right. So this guy really, oh, and the other connections, you know, measuring the magnetic field everywhere. Uh, he gets enough of these measurements to actually compute where the magnetic equator is. I'm astonished that sailors hadn't been uh, doing that kind of measurement. A- apparently not. Wow. Like it was known, I guess it was known that the geographic pole was not the magnetic pole. Right. But when he tells people, hey, we just crossed the magnetic equator, like nobody understands what he's talking about. There's no magnetic He's like, there is, and it's not the geographic equator. Wow. Um, and he gets enough of these to be able to plot irregularities in the Earth's magnetic field. And, he, you know, around in the early 19th century, he enlists volunteers all over the world to help map the magnetic equator. He, he notices a cold ocean current going up by Ecuador that is still named the Humboldt Current to this day. And as he climbs the Andes, he notices that all these volcanoes all the way up to Mexico are kind of in a straight line. There's like a... There's like a, a single ridge or maybe two r- distinct ridges of volcanoes he's noticing. And he discovers what today we call the Pacific Ring of Fire. Like he realizes that volcanoes are not isolated things. They're linked in some kind of a right. in some kind of an underground fashion. So dozens of sciences he basically gives us our modern understanding of. And when his books start to come out, he becomes the most one of you know, maybe the most influential and famous thinker on the planet. He published 20 volumes of his explorations? Well over 20 and something like 30. And and by the end of his explorations, you know, I said that there had only been 6,000 species discovered. He brought back 60,000 samples of 6,000 species, including in those unlightened ages, you know, monkey skeletons and even, even human skeletons. You know, he was not above bringing back archaeological digs that included human remains. But mostly plant specimens, in, in, uh, 6,000 species, 2,000 of which were new species. So the, huh. so he, he widened the breadth of botany by 33% just by wandering around South America for, for five years. And most importantly, taking notes. It's a, it's a really good lesson for any of us who have ever thought, I have cool thoughts like that all the time. I just need to start carrying around a notebook well, that's or the, a hair hygrometer. That's the astonishing thing, right? I mean, uh, that he n- not only wrote it down, but thought to write it down. Thought to write it down at the time, and then synthesized, spent decades synthesizing five years of findings until he figured out how volcanism worked and how magnetic fields worked and how weather worked, um, how ge- how geographic climate zones and, and vegetative zones worked. Um, it, his fame continued long after his death. On September 14th, by the time he died, you know, everything had been named for him, Uh Monuments and memorials and cities and bodies of water. I should say, uh, in looking at it here, that his uh, his visit to Jefferson, um, in uh, in the United States, coincided almost exactly with the departure of Lewis and Clark. So they would have definitely heard briefing stuff from Humboldt. Huh? Yeah, I guess so. Um, it, on September fourteenth, eighteen sixty nine, this is the hundredth anniversary of his death. He he's passed away decades before. But he is such a big name Wait, that— 1869? Sorry, the 100th anniversary of his birth. Sorry. I see. Okay. The centenary of his birth. He is still such a big celebrity that there are massive parties on five continents. The streets of Buenos Aires, the streets of Melbourne, the streets of all the world's great cities are full of people recognizing the great mind of the age, Alexander von Humboldt. 80,000 people uh, take to the streets in Berlin for the biggest Humboldt bash. Uh, the New York Times devotes its whole front page— to the life and accomplishments of a man who's been dead for decades. He is an incredible celebrity. Why do we not know him now? That's really interesting, right? Why do we not know him now? We talk about Darwin all the time. Sure. But it's because Darwin is a shorthand for a kind of, uh, like a an organizing principle of the world that we all sort of mistake how it works and we can throw the word Darwin at one another because we, right. we misapply it to other systems. We think we understand a, a one-sentence... This uh, summary of his work. Is it just the great variety of his discovery? I wonder if that's what's part of it. You can't, because he was, because he revolutionized dozens of fields, because he was a generalist, there's no easy shorthand. I mean, I guess you could say he was the first environmentalist, but for whatever reason that didn't catch on or has not, you know, in a, environmentalism is kind of a recent invention. But you know, Einstein had a, you know, had a great variety of discovery, that's but I true. guess it's all condensed into his, uh, 
theory of relativity in, in the popular imagination. I, I know one problem is in the tw- in the early late 19th and early 20th centuries, I think his work was not read much because as a product of the Romantic movement, his flowery oh, sure. prose full of you know beautiful Romantic description um, was no longer in style. He was too Byronic. Right. He's, you know, he's, he's a goth and it's, it's an age of, of company men. Um, and honestly, like in the 20th century, a lot of it's gotta be, I'm just speculating here. A lot of it's gotta be that he was German. Oh, I see. Like beginning with world war one, Germanness became very out of style. Every place else culture was happening. France, Britain, the United States. I mean, you know, all the stuff about how German shepherds were renamed, Alsatians uh-huh. during World War One because even having a dog with German in the name would be just be the equivalent of having Osama bin Laden's painting over your fireplace, I guess. So I wonder if if being German, being the prototypical Prussian, kind of put him out of style. Yeah, that's kind of fascinating because I mean Germany has been such a, a font of science over the last couple hundred years and art. So I really, it really does show that this is the fate that awaits us all. I mean, you can revolutionize a dozen different sciences, and 150 years later, you will be anonymous and have all these things named after you in the in the glory of your of your fame in life. And now they've just become. I mean, the name Humboldt just sounds like whatever. Any a, just a strain of weed. Yeah, just a weird strain of weed. <laughs> And that concludes Alexander von Humboldt, entry 605.co0203, certificate number 41705 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, which now, based on the story of Alexander von Humboldt, I find it's even less likely that any of this social media will survive or any of the, or that we will even note any of the dumb stuff we've said on Twitter. Who, who's the most famous person on Twitter? I don't mean like the president. Like, I don't mean the president. I mean like who's the, who is the person that Twitter made? The king of Twitter? Rob Delaney got a TV deal in a different country. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good, right? But who's going to remember? Well, they'll they'll probably remember him because they like his TV show. Not all of Twitter will just wash away. It'll it's just like sand through the hourglass. I mean, on the one hand, Alexander von Humboldt was sand through the hourglass. On the other hand, Friends and The Office, you know, shows that none of us would have really thought of as good ground groundbreaking or, immo- or still think as good I- immortal you know Im- immortal good. culture i mean i am not i have nothing against either show but i wouldn't have thought of them as immortal cultural milestones these are now 100 million dollar industries for whoever gets to stream them because sometimes people just like the comfort of the old stuff i guess but when was the last time you saw an episode of all in the family <laughs> yeah that's not so comforting i guess uh anyway uh you can go to at omnibus project anywhere you care to look uh, although i don't think we're on kick we we're don't not, have a Snapchat either. We're not on TikTok yet. Um, our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, you can find us there. In fact, I am on Snapchat, but I haven't posted in two years. Do you mostly use it to snap or to chat? Well, uh, what I realized when I first started using it was that I didn't want to chat with anybody. I just wanted to snap. And that's not why you use Snapchat. It's not a broadcast medium. It's a place to send naked selfies to your friends with little, uh, like bunny noses. On which part of the naked selfie? (laughs) Up to you. Up to you. So I was out there like doing little videos, walking around the town saying, Hey everybody. But, uh, that's just, that's not how it's designed. Cause people would then like reply to me and I'm like, I don't want to I don't want you to reply to me. Stop it. You know, they're sending me videos and stuff. Right. So you were more into the snapping. I, I like snapping, the chatting. not the chatting. Uh, you can email us and please do at the omnibus project at gmail.com. We're going to start reading your letters uh, as part of our uh, Patreon bonus tier arrangement schema. Um, Maybe we will, if you write good letters. If you just write dumb letters, then we'll we'll come up with a different idea. It's a lot of pressure there. 
Uh, you can join the Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook, where you can chat with like-minded futurelings, like-minded... Uh, Assuming they have minds. be antennaed uh, insectoids, <laughs> uh, sentient te- plates, all, tectonic plates. All species, all phyla are welcome on the Futurelings Facebook group. Please send us mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. Certainly our memory has not. We are now accustomed to that idea. We're long gone. We hope and pray that the catastrophe fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all oh. the recordings in this series, could be our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.